This episode is brought to you by Ethical Electric, who makes it fast and easy to switch to green renewable energy for your home or office. Visit ethicalelectric.com slash best for details. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Moyers & Company, comedian Lee Camp, Counterspin, The Young Turks, Economic Update, 350.org, and the Marion Institute. Remember Kelsey Juliana from Eugene, Oregon? She's 18 years old and co-plaintiff in a lawsuit spearheaded by the organization Our Children's Trust, which claims that Oregon is not doing all it can to slow down global warming and protect the future. It's one of several such suits around the country based on the doctrine of public trust, which goes back to ancient Rome. Here's an excerpt from that conversation. Public trust um, states that the government is a trustee to protect these natural resources, air, water, um, land, you know, to protect them for this generation and for many generations down the line. The law professor who has developed this theory in its more modern uh, garb, mm -hmm. Mary Christina Wood, says it's because the government agencies that are supposed to protect our natural resources have been captured by corporate raiders and lobbyists, yes. that these agencies treat these industries as their clients instead of the public. Do you think that's right? Unfortunately, we you know, do have a lot of corruption, a lot of money, a lot of greed that influences most of um, our governmental decisions. So I do think that's, that's right. And that's why we're you know, going to the courts to hold um, the legislator accountable. Further hearings in the Oregon case are expected in a couple of months. The idea, which has come to be called atmospheric trust litigation, is catching on, thanks to this very influential book, Nature's Trust, by the aforementioned legal scholar Mary Christina Wood. She teaches law at the University of Oregon and founded the Environmental and Natural Resources Law Program there. Mary Christina Wood, welcome. Thank you. Let's talk about some of those cases that have been filed by our Children's Trust. Exactly what is the purpose of those particular suits? What do they want? Every suit and every administrative petition uh, filed in every state in the country and against the federal government asks for the same relief. And that is for the government, whether it's the state of Tennessee or the state of Oregon or the federal government, to bring down carbon emissions in compliance with what scientists say is necessary to avert catastrophic climate change. And so the remedy in the suits pending is for the courts to order a plan, simply order the legislatures and the agencies to do their job in figuring out how to lower carbon emissions. So the courts would not actually figure out how to do that. That's the other branch's job. It's just that they're not doing it, and they probably won't without pressure before we pass crucial tipping points. A plaintiff in one of the early suits, 16 years old at the time, sued the federal government, quote, for making decisions that threaten our right to a safe and healthy planet. Now, where does it say anywhere in law that the government serves as the trustee of the atmosphere and that it's violating uh, its most compelling duties by failing, in the words of this young man, to protect the atmosphere from climate change? Where do you find that? <laughs> you find that in case law going back to the beginning years of this country. 
Uh, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, has announced the public trust doctrine in multiple cases over the years. And again, it's in every state jurisprudence as well. Um, and so this is not statutory law. I think people are so accustomed to our statutory system, they always say, as you just did, where can we find it written down in a statute? Well, this is actually the foundation of all laws. Professor Gerald Torres has a wonderful quote in his writing saying, this is the slate upon which all constitutions and laws are written. And that is the approach most courts in this country and other countries take in describing the public trust. It's clear that you consider the courts the alternative to the streets. No, I would never say the two are mutually exclusive. Um, the court is just one, it, it's an important branch of government, it's the third branch of government, it's crucial to our checks and balances. And so of course you would think that the courts have a role to play. But street democracy is so powerful. I don't know of any major movement that has succeeded without street democracy. When hundreds of thousands of people take to the streets, as they did in New York City, exercise their constitutional rights of free assembly. And then when you see also almost 100,000 people signing up and pledging to risk arrest if Keystone, the Keystone pipeline that would transport tar sands um, from Canada, those people are pledging to risk arrest if Obama or Congress approves the Keystone pipeline. When you see this kind of uprising, that only reinforces the more formal um, legal approaches that are put forth in atmospheric trust litigation. The two go very much hand in hand because what is very important for judges is to sense the moral authority of the people. Judges have an, a finger on the pulse of the American people in a way that I think we don't really understand that well. Judges can if they sense the need, move very rapidly and order swift injunctions to force the legislatures or agencies or both to create a carbon reduction plan. And as that awareness becomes more acute as demonstrated in the streets, courts, I believe, will become more receptive to coming in and ordering the legislatures to do their job. What has happened to all those great laws passed in the 1970s. I mean, I was around for the, for the first Earth Day in 1970, and then there came all of those promising laws out of Congress, which even President Nixon uh, supported. There was so much optimism, so much promise. It's a huge disappointment. There was a lot of promise. The Americans thought they had solved the problem by getting these laws passed. What they didn't realize was that industries got inside the agencies through various means, through campaign contributions, through pressure on the system over and over again. And so one thing we have to keep in mind is we're nearing the end of our resources. And there are laws of nature that we have to comply with. And those laws are supreme, and they determine whether we will survive on this planet, and they will determine the future conditions for our children. And so right now, our environmental laws are out of whack with the laws of nature. They are allowing destruction, whereas they should be structuring society to create a balance with the natural systems that support our lives. This paragraph leaped out at me. I'm quoting directly. It matters little what new laws emerge, for they will develop the same 
bureaucratic sinkholes that consumed the 1970 laws. Only a transformational approach can address sources of legal decay. What's the heart of this transformational approach? Well, the heart of the approach is the public trust doctrine. Um, and it says the government is a trustee of the resources that support our public welfare and survival. Right. And so a trust means that one entity or person manages a certain wealth, an endowment, so to speak, for the benefit of others. And in the case of the public trust, the beneficiaries are the present and future generations of citizens. So it is a statement of, in essence, public property rights that have been known since Roman times. In fact, this was articulated by the Chief Justice of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court in a landmark public trust decision last year. And the, the decision basically overturned a statute that the Pennsylvania legislature had passed to promote fracking. And the Chief Justice of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, Chief Justice Castile, said this violates the public trust. And he began his opinion by saying that citizens hold inalienable environmental rights to assure the habitability of their communities. And that these are ensconced in the social contract that citizens make with government. They cannot be, um, they cannot be alienated. They are inherent and reserved. So they are of a constitutional nature. And the point of the public trust is that the citizens hold these constitutional rights in an enduring natural endowment that is supposed to support all future generations of citizens in this country. It is so basic to democracy. In fact, the late Joseph Sachs said um, the trust distinguishes a society of citizens from serfs. This is a political question. I mean, it, 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 it's a question that traditionally uh, legislators elected by voters would resolve. But you are taking it to court. Well, it is a political question for the legislatures to respond to. The fact is they're not. And if this nation relies on a stable climate system and the very habitability of this nation and all of the liberties of young people and their survival interests are at stake, uh, the courts need to force the agencies and the legislatures to simply do their job. But haven't most of the lower courts dismissed these suits on procedural grounds that dealing with climate is, quote, indeed a political question that the courts must avoid? Well, it's interesting. As the lit This is very new litigation. These cases were all filed by the group Our Children's Trust in 2011. And so the, the initial ones um, really set some important principles in place. Number one, the courts seem to realize that the public trust is an area of law that the legislatures and, and agencies must abide by, that the, the young people of this country have public trust rights. They're recognizing air and atmosphere, most of them, as a public trust resource, either implicitly or explicitly. Mm -hmm. They're increasingly recognizing the urgency of climate change. And the latest cases have even dismissed the political question doctrine as a defense. They've been saying, you do have to deal with this. It's not, this is a public trust right. It's not just a matter for the other branches of government. You have to figure out the nature of the right and give relief if you find there is a justiciable 
right there. And as the petitions get denied, which they will by the administrative agencies, we all know that, that will be no surprise, the youth and their lawyers are then preparing judicial challenges in those states. And so really the message for judges out there that get these cases, I think, is this is not an environmental case. Not an environmental case? No. What is it? Climate is not just an environmental issue. This is a civilizational issue. This is the biggest case that courts will get in terms of mm. the potential harm in front of them, the population affected by that harm, and in terms of the urgency. Climate is mind-blowing. It can't be categorized any longer as an environmental issue. I won't jump through the hoops of the system. Nothing stands between you and the pursuit of your vision. I grab a loop with this rhythm. It puts the juice in my pistons to jump back. React, spit in the booth with precision. And when I'm cruising with this, I'm, yeah, I'm deucing the spliff. And it's a B&E show, bitch. Getting loose was a given. I don't want them to look back when the future is written. And know we killed ourselves with nuclear vision and stupid decisions. Shit, I'd rather an asteroid do for collision. And know the planet got fucked by the human condition. Sing the tune with conviction. And all I know is the sun is shining, yet we fight all through the night, while the birds are melting and the sea is rising, I don't know. Naomi Klein in her book, and I hope that a lot of the important people are paying, I gotta read this paying attention book. to her book. Uh, this changes everything. Um, I'm only just getting into it, but it's a great book. It's very depressing, but it's a great book, uh, really laying it all out there. But she makes a great point that she went to some of these, uh, like the Heartland Institute does this whole like anti-climate change event where they talk about how it's well, – well, basically they talk about how it's not happening or it's a liberal's dream or whatever. But <laughs> she has a great point that they put up on panels their scientists, right, these guys who, who, who say uh, things that are out of the norm and, and prove that – uh, either, but and prove these things. But what's interesting is they're they're disagreeing on a lot of these things. Like one will say it's not happening. One will say it's not man-made. One will say it is happening, but it's not because of you know uh, CO two. It's because of something else. One will say so. They've all have these different reasons. Yet they don't argue about that. No one in the crowd goes, "Wait a second, that guy said it's not happening. This guy says it's happening, but it's not man-made." So basically their own dudes who are largely funded by gas and oil and stuff like that or just crackpots, uh, their own dudes aren't even agreeing on this shit. But basically as long as you're not saying it's man-made and it's happening, then uh, it's fine. Then they'll just put you up there as if there's agreement. Why do so many people not want to believe in it outside of if you're directly profiting off of it? Um, is it really, really attached to like... Well, God wouldn't let our Earth burn up. Is it? Is it a ton of that too? Oh, okay, so now I got to read you. You just brought up exactly. 
what I wrote. I'll just read. Before we do it's this. It's looking increasingly likely humans <laughs> won't act in time to stop catastrophic climate change. I find it interesting that part of the reason for that failure is many people's belief in a God that won't allow such a thing to happen and or an afterlife. That'll be pretty fucking sweet anyway. So why bother saving the planet? Just for a moment, think about the irony of that. If you're like me, you don't believe that a God created humankind. Therefore, he didn't create us. He's not real. But he will be responsible for killing us. That's breathtaking. That's pretty incredible. Or even if you do believe in a God, it's still hilarious that he would create humankind and then watch as we destroy ourselves partially because we think he'll save us. Either way, it's a pretty damn good joke. God damn. I, uh... As well put, Leroy. I uh, Thanks, I used to have uh, I used to have a joke. I used to have a joke where I talk about how it's uh, it's dangerous to believe in heaven from the perspective of the environment because what do you, why do you care what happens to this place? Is after you go, you're going to go to this super sweet place. And I would do all these different tags. But one of them, I'd be like, "Who cares if all these creepy looking bald eagles go extinct? If in heaven there's eagles with long flowing Lots hair? Of- you know, oh look at that one over there, it's so beautiful. Like, oh look at that one, it's got the most beautiful dreadlocks I've even ever seen. Oh, fly on, Rasta eagle, fly on, and all this stuff. It was quite a good joke, and it was good. Early J. Fod stand up was yeah. wackadoo. No, actually, I was middle. Yeah, that was early. It was somewhat early, but I've reworked it, and I actually did the joke, a version of it, like it, like a number of months ago or whatever. But I like it. I like it. It still works, but it is about that. But so, and getting back to why do so many people want to deny climate change or not believe it? One is what I just said about about the God thing. I think that's part of it. and by the way, uh, new numbers are our Congress is 92% Christian. And for non religious. There's good Christians and, and bad Christians. Oh, I didn't say they were bad. I just said. I mean, they're, they're all silly, but said, I mean, there's good ones and bad ones. <laughs> I mean, they're all children. No, just kidding. Yeah. Uh, we have plenty of Christian listeners, John. No, well, I'm saying it's like, you know, whatever. I mean, I don't, oh, just like let go, right? But I mean, I'm not going to think that every Christian is a climate denier. You know what I mean? So anyway, what I was going to say is some of it's that some of it is uh, is a big portion of it, obviously, is just the stuff that's funded by uh, the Koch brothers and the oil industry to to put doubt in people's mind um, in a variety of ways. They hired the same people that that put doubt about smoking, whether smoking was causing cancer. Like that's the same same fucking dudes still are still kicking around that or, or at least the same ideas. And uh and and so a lot of it is that you know in a lot of states and cities uh, in Pennsylvania and stuff they have like billboards of like Charles Manson that say this guy still believes in climate change. No way. Yeah, 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 totally. And uh, wow. Yeah, Manson. So Manson's a pretty good guy. He believes in climate change, and he got a new girlfriend. Yeah, he's doing good, good. Pretty good guy. Things are looking. And he stands up for what he believes in. He does. <laughs> like, mass murder. But, uh, um, what the, wait, 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 wait. Last thing I want to say about this, about why, so why, the question, another question is why is this so important to these oil industries, to these neocons, to that, that side of the political spectrum? And Naomi Klein again makes a great point that it's because admitting to this undermines everything they've fought for. Admitting that a, we don't have dominance over nature. Nature can fuck us up, and we can't just behave however the however the hell we want. That they don't want to admit. They want to think we have dominance over nature. We have dominance of the earth. Another <coughs> is uh, is that the free market won't solve this. They can't accept that. 
The free market is supposed to have solutions for everything. So if we're killing ourselves with fumes, then the free market should solve it. But it's not going to. It, the free market would continue to rape the earth until we're all dead. Now, the, the final point is that um, in order to solve these problems, you need communal action. You need people to come together. You need nations to come together. All the nations need to agree to do things better. And that's another thing that undermines every tenet that they stand for. Holy shit. That sucks. It's weird because I've been convinced that the free market could solve everything. I mean, that's been my my therapist has been the the free market. I'm just like, hey, what's going on? It's like, do whatever you want. You can't fuck up. I had a better joke for I, that earlier. I, I, is this going towards the invisible hand fingering joke? No, 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 no. But what I do want to say is this. Um, you're right, and it sucks because we can't. Yeah, these nations can't get to uh, together and you know um, agree on emissions and stuff. We were some serious pricks about this back in the in the uh, in the nineties, late nineties, early two thousands with uh, the Kyoto Treaty and stuff like that. I remember when I was in college about that, and how all these countries wanted to sign on to that, and we crushed that. That's when there really was right. still such a chance to kind of to save things. Now, what's happening, unfortunately, we even got Canada to pull out of Kyoto. Oh, I didn't. I didn't know that. I didn't think that that was the case, but maybe we did at some point. But uh, maybe you're right. But I don't know. I can't remember. But what's very unfortunate now is countries that are going to be that are huge emitters, like uh, you know China, India, stuff like that. They're saying, "Hey, you guys got to have your industrial revolution and do whatever you wanted throughout all the 19th into the 20th, half the 19th, and well, all all 20th century. Ours is happening now. It's unfair of you to tell us that we have to cap." our emissions, right? And what will happen, too, is that, uh, you know, these other countries won't have standards. We'll have standards, but we won't even uh, fulfill them, and we'll constantly be trying to roll them back. So you're right. It does have to be a global effort, and there's a lot of countries that are globally, uh, globally failing. People around the world are using today as a day of action in fighting climate change. Hundreds of environment campaigners gathered in Edinburgh today. Last year was the hottest in recorded history, the New York Times reported on January 16th. A vitally important story, to be sure, but a closer look at the reporting left some questions. The first quote in the piece comes from Stefan Romsdorf, the head of Earth System Analysis at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research in Germany. He says that while a single year doesn't tell us much about trends, quote, the fact that the warmest years on record are 2014, 2010, and 2005 clearly indicates that global warming has not stopped in 1998, as some like to falsely claim, close quote. That's followed by reporter Justin Gillis's observation that such claims are unlikely to go away, though. That's his segue to a passage that discusses the views of climate denier John R. Christie, known for his skepticism about the seriousness of global warming. 
Christie, readers are told, quote, pointed out in an interview that 2014 had surpassed the other record warm years by only a few hundredths of a degree, well within the error margin of global temperature measurements, close quote. And the denier himself is quoted saying, since the end of the 20th century, the temperature hasn't done much. It's on this kind of warmish plateau. Well, there's one more quote in the piece from Gavin Schmidt, head of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, who says, quote, Why do we keep getting so many record warm years? It's because the planet is warming. The basic issue is the long-term trend, and it is not going away, close quote. So is this the right way or the wrong way to cover the news of the record heat? That depends. If the purpose of an article like this is to convey how open-minded the New York Times is, then the piece is a success, managing to give one-third of its quotes to a proponent of a fringe theory without giving any indication that his eccentric views are virtually absent from peer-reviewed science. If, on the other hand, the goal of a piece like this is to convey the reality of a global crisis with devastating consequences for life on Earth, you'd have to say it fails. That's to say, if you're on the Titanic and it's sinking, it's actually not reasonable to spend a third of your time telling people about the crank in the bar who thinks icebergs are a myth. Twenty fourteen was not just a hot year, it was literally the hottest year since eighteen eighty, one hundred and thirty five years ago. This is according to new reports from a couple of different government agencies. The year's average combined global land and ocean surface temperature was fifty eight point two four degrees Fahrenheit. This is one point two four degrees Fahrenheit above the twentieth century average. The ten warmest years on record have all been after nineteen ninety eight. And 2014 marked the 38th straight year with global average temperatures above the 20th century average. Uh, and you'll also not be surprised to find out that carbon dioxide levels are also at a ridiculously high level. Carbon dioxide concentrations surpassed 400 parts per million back in May of 2013 for the first time in at least 800,000 years. The last time carbon Jesus. dioxide levels were this high, temperatures were up to 11 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than today, and sea levels were dozens of feet higher. And so when we talk about the rise in carbon dioxide concentrations and we talk about global uh, average temperatures going up and we worry about rising sea levels in the last few decades, there is a, a, an amazing um, number of historical and scientific reasons that we do that. I do want to bring up one chart before we start to discuss. You're going to see in this chart the uh, average temperature per year. And you can see, although Republicans would love to tell you that these are just natural sort of it's a cyclical variation there. You can see the trend. Now, that goes back to 1880. It might be that that's not, not long enough for you, but we also know that the carbon dioxide level, this is uh, beyond anything we've seen in, as we said, almost a million years. This is not a, you know, a normal sort of cycle of the Earth's climate. This is something different, and it should be something that scares pretty much everyone who watches this video. Okay, well, now let's be fair, John. Uh, yes, 2014 was the hottest year ever, okay, mm -hmm. in the last 135 years, as long as we've been tracking it, right? But uh, of the hottest months ever, May was the highest, in 2014, was the hottest May we've ever had. 
wait a minute, so was June, and August was also the hottest August we've ever had, and so was September, yeah. and so was October, <laughs> and so was December. Yeah. Okay, so six months out of the year were the hottest months we have ever had in recorded history. Okay. Yeah, so, but that's according to scientists. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. I, yeah. you, you belong on point counterpoint. <laughs> you and can play did, the Republican well. It snow a couple times last year, so how bad could it be, really? <laughs> I don't understand why you would defend, uh, you would argue against the global warming, unless if you owned an oil company. There should be like five guys out there. Who are like, no, this is all made up, and everyone else should be like, this, it's getting really hot. Yeah, it's yeah. really hot, and things are melting, and uh, this ain't good. But Maz, that's how it started. It started as five guys, and yeah. then they decided, hey, why don't we uh, buy some friends, right? And so they did think tanks and things like that, and they started American Enterprise Institute and all these different conservative think tanks, and they put out papers saying. Well, scientists, scientists, you know what I'm saying, right? right? And then people are like, oh, the Heritage Foundation, American Enterprise Institute said science, science. Maybe they're right, right? And it's, I mean, he said this and she said that. And then they paid off the politicians and all of a sudden they had more friends, yeah. right? And then once you pay off the politicians and you got all these uh, policy papers, then the media comes in and goes, oh, I got to call it 50-50, yeah. right? And then next thing you know, we went from five guys to a whole heap of propaganda that's Convinces about a third of the country, but good enough to, you know, jam up the work. So the news media went from reporting the facts about global warming to then de reporting or presenting the debate, the debate about global warming, which there is no debate about global warming. There's just only the only debate that happens is inside their head, the right wingers' heads, or on major news shows. That's where the debate happens. There's no debate happening within. Yeah. This debate has happened. It's taken place. Climate scientists have come to a consensus. So this, it's like debating evolution. This debate has already too, taken place. I know, but that's I, that's why I, the debate has already taken place. Except when you watch Brian Williams or David Muir or Scott Pelley, they'll pretend, or Anderson Cooper, they'll pretend there's still a debate about global warming. And that's why there's not just five guys out there. But even even if you disagree with global warming, there's a lot of things. Can't we just agree that, okay, recycling is good? Even if you don't think oh, you're, you're riding your bike that. to work might actually, it might, it oh, might be good no for way. you, lose some weight. So then there were some Republican governors <laughs> who literally, I think it was LePage in Maine, and there might have been a couple others, who literally tried to take away bike lanes. Just yes. Like, just to be spiteful. What is that? Yeah. <laughs> just, Hey, I want you to be fatter, like me. Like LePage is fairly overweight. Yeah. The but mayor of Toronto, I think, did the same thing. He came down on bike. Was lanes. that pre or post crack? No, yeah. that both. Ford? Okay. That was both, okay. pre and post. It's, yeah, oh Ford. I, I'm glad that you brought up evolution too, because it, when we debate evolution, it, it bothers me personally because the the risk of our, of our country not taking seriously the reality of evolution is that we raise a generation of kids who are too stupid to compete in a global marketplace of jobs, and we're surpassed by other countries, which we do see happening. But the consequences are so much greater when it comes to a debate about climate change. I mean, we're talking about politicians who've been bought out for almost no money, very small amounts of money, and we're literally talking about the possible destruction of our planet and its ability to sustain human life. We're talking about a great deal of damage done to food production. We're talking about the development of resource wars in various parts of the world. We're talking about the flooding of coastlines, displacing literally hundreds of millions, if not billions of people. And they're being bought off for a few hundred thousand dollars so that an industry which is already more profitable than any other industry in the history of the world can make a little bit more money. It's not like they're on the bare edge of like, oh, we're going to go into the red. They're already making tens of billions of dollars every year and they just want a little bit more and they're willing to wreck 
the world to get that. Well, when they look back at this, this will be the defining, uh, you know, example of greed. I mean, this is greed run amok. I mean, they're literally destroying the planet to add just a little extra percentage to their already in mm -hmm. unbelievable profits. And it's not a hyperbole. I believe the top five oil companies are among the top ten most profitable companies in the in world. History, right? And so to more facts here, because it's, I just wanted to be absolutely clear. If so if you don't believe these things, you're wrong. It's, it's not an opinion. It's not a political ideology. Now you can say they have a whole bunch of excuses. So one of their excuses, by the way, is, oh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, there was a really warm years in 98, 2005, and 2010. And, but that was, those were El Nino years. And it's really mm -hmm. El Nino. It's a, so that's why it won't happen in a non-El Nino year. <laughs> Uh, 2014 was a non-El Nino year, and it happened anyway. We broke the record anyway. Yeah. And normally what we would have is, you know, obviously you'd have uh, half the months be a, uh, colder than average, and half the months would be hotter than average, right? That's why it's average, right? <laughs> okay, well, since the last time we had a month that was colder than average was February of 1985, okay? So we I remember that I froze my ass. That <laughs> <laughs> was, was a tough month. Oh, oh, man, I, I didn't go to school. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and I want to read graphic tw uh, nine here, is because this on the issue of is it man-made? Is it not man-made? Maybe it just happened by chance, guys. Maybe you yeah. just blown this out of proportion. Okay, the odds that nine out of ten warmest years would occur in the past decade, as they have, by chance alone are about 650 million to one. So there's a one, there is a chance. So <laughs> one out of every 650 million, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so you can't, they're not completely full of shit. Yeah. There is a chance. I and think we I hope that that chance could, 50 years. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think we keep debating it. And that if that one in 650 million chance happens, guess who's going to look like an asshole? <laughs> <laughs> what, what also, what, what's, what's sad is, you know, I mean, I think America uh, is, we're encouraged to, to, to think critically. I mean, not, not that's, that's the point. Like, we can. We have freedom of thought, supposedly. And it's a shame when people that have that freedom of thought don't sit there for a second and go, it just feel, it feels, it feels a little warmer. You know? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's that simple. My six-year-old boy, it's funny because these guys think like my six-year-old boy. The other day, we live in L.A. and it rained. And my six-year-old was like, there's no drought. Yeah. Ah. He's like, what are you talking about? Ah. I was like, it's going to need, it's going to take a little longer. But that's how people think. If yeah. you just keep letting him go, he, he could be a great Fox News anchor. I know. He's a <laughs> natural. One easy way to make a difference and vote with your dollars is to sign up to replace fossil fuels with green energy for your home or office. I've partnered with Ethical Electric, a clean energy company that makes it fast and easy to switch to wind power for your energy needs. Nothing about how you receive your energy will change. You continue to receive your bill from your regional utility, but you'll be buying 100% Pennsylvania wind energy with your monthly dues and supporting Best of the Left at the same time. Just go to ethicalelectric.com slash best to sign up. They service states from Illinois over to Connecticut and down to Washington, D.C., and they're always working on expanding into new territory. So if you're anywhere in that area, check them out to see if you're covered.
If you're in another area of the U.S., I recommend simply Googling the phrase buying green power to find the green power network from the U.S. Department of Energy, where you'll be able to find the green energy suppliers in your area. Again, that's ethicalelectric.com slash best. That link is also in the sidebar of my website. Or simply Google buying green power. And if you're outside the U.S., then you're on your own. As everyone who's reasonable knows, we are burning fossil fuels, above all oil, in a way that damages the environment, threatens our health, produces global warming, climate catastrophes, floods, droughts, you name it. And everybody who's reasonable knows that what we really need to learn how to do is to consume less of it to give ourselves less of the damage from burning fossil fuels by burning less of them. This is not rocket science. So a rational society would be working really hard on producing alternative kinds of energy, wind, solar, and so on, but above all, cutting consumption. And there are lots of ways of doing that. But in our society, which is governed by the rules and drives of capitalism, profit driving enterprises above all else, we're not cutting on our consumption in a significant way. Instead, we're focusing on finding new and different sources of petroleum. And we've done that, particularly in the United States with shale oil and so on, from North Dakota at the top to Texas, the middle part of the United States, there's a boom been going on for some years in bringing new sources of petroleum to the surface. So it's ecological disaster, and even suicide isn't too strong a word uh, for what we're doing. And it's economically irrational because it isn't the solution we know we need, which is less consumption. Instead, it's more production. Now, step two. Besides the bad thing for the environment, we're not planning this in any way. In other words, the explosion of oil found through fracking from these new sources, particularly in the United States, is being dumped on the world market in a relatively short amount of time. That means the supply of oil is going up dramatically. Okay, stay with me now. At the same time, the capitalist system has produced a breakdown ever since 2008, and that breakdown is still very severe in Japan, very severe in Europe, and very much still with us here in the United States. And when you have depressed economies because of a capitalist crisis, the demand for oil is reduced. Okay, we're producing more than ever through fracking and the damage it does. And we're demanding less. And the result is, surprise, surprise, a collapse in the price of oil. Okay, now let's take it the next step. What are the consequences of that? Well, there's good news and bad news, which is true of the consequences of everything. Here's the good news, because that's what the media seems to want to focus on. We all spend less to fuel our automobiles, to heat our homes, whether we're individuals or businesses, we are saving money on the energy we all require. That's useful. That improves the economic situation of all of the consumers of oil. 
But that's only part of the story. The other part is what's happening to the producers and sellers of oil. Well, they are in deep trouble. Norway, Russia, Venezuela, Nigeria, Iran, Iraq. These countries that rely to a large extent on selling oil are suddenly seeing their economies disintegrate. Over this last week, there's been a major crisis in Russia. There's been a major change in economic policies in Norway, in Nigeria, in Venezuela. We don't even know what the effects on the already destroyed country of Iraq will be now that they can't generate the only income they had for a while, which was from their oil. The ramifications of this are staggering. Because think about it. When oil prices are high, we all pay a lot extra, which funnels its way into the hands of a tiny number of very rich folks. Leaders of Saudi Arabia, leaders of big oil companies, leaders in Russia, and, and so forth. A lot of us pay, and a few gather the money. They put that money in the banks. That's wonderful for the banks, who have huge blocks of money that they can now use in a variety of ways, answering only to a few authorities. When you take all that money away, which is what falling oil pro prices do, you're dispersing the money. Now let's follow it. Russia, Norway, big oil companies, they're going to have to, and they're already doing it, cut back on the projects that they had expected to finance with all of the money from selling oil, which they're not getting anymore because the oil prices are down. They're canceling all kinds of investment programs. They're canceling all kinds of purchases that they had made because they can't pay for them. Russia is a major buyer of products from Europe. The European economy, already weak, will be weakened more because of the loss of those orders. You have to weigh that against whatever gains Europeans get by having cheaper oil. No one knows how that's going to all work out, and it's going to vary from country to country, from situation to situation. That's why this whole thing is chaotic. This is not a rational way to handle neither the ecological dimensions of oil nor the financial consequences of a drop in the oil price. Why let it happen so quickly? That's an economy that's not working well, is it? So whether you look at the ecological or the financial dimensions, this is a disaster. And it's a f upon us, shaping us, shaping world politics as well as world economics, because a system is spinning out of control and isn't working very well. And the irony here is it isn't working in a stable way. It isn't working in a rational way. It isn't working the way we want. And that's true for all of us, even those who sit at the top of the pyramid. They at least get a lot of money out of all of this, but even they are going to suffer the ecological and other consequences of a system that we can do better than, and nothing illustrates it more than capitalism's crazy Christmas time in the year 2014. I think there's nothing much to say about a system that's seen in state.
Too much has gone too wrong to keep pretending You will not be okay I think that we all feel the same Fossil fuels have no future. Today, in oil, gas and coal reserves around the world, there is five times more burnable fuel than will ever be safe to burn. Yet, despite undeniable proof that they're fueling a climate crisis, the fossil fuel industry is ploughing on with its mission to find more. These companies, with all their financial might, are the biggest obstacle to climate progress. They have our political process in shackles with their lobbying power, their arm bending of politicians and their spreading of false information. And they are enjoying billions in government subsidies every year. Fossil fuel companies only care about one thing, money and their ability to keep making it. What can we do about this and who can stand up against them and steer the world towards a safe future powered by clean, renewable energy? Well. You can. You, and me, and her, and them, and those guys, and that group over there, and their friends, and them. They might have power and money, but we have a different currency. It's us, our movement, and we can hit them where it hurts. Since 2012, thousands of respected institutions, local governments, and individuals have pledged to divest from fossil fuels. It's the fastest growing divestment movement in history. Divestment is deliberately moving your money away from companies you're not happy with. It's helped to stop some of history's worst offenders, including apartheid South Africa. Each act of divestment takes back power from the fossil fuel industry and helps create a mandate for our leaders to take real climate action. Last September, hundreds of thousands of us took to the streets to demand action. And now is the time you can join us again. On February the 13th and 14th, 2015, in the run-up to Crucial Climate Talks in Paris, we're holding our first Global Divestment Day, where thousands of people everywhere will turn out to take a collective stand, demanding institutions finally do what is necessary to protect our future on this planet. We'll close our accounts with banks and funds who continue to invest in climate chaos. Faith groups, students and frontline communities affected by climate impacts all over the world will get involved. We'll hold divestment flash mobs, vigils, sit-ins, meetings and rallies and we'll get the right information out there. We'll be asking people and institutions everywhere to divest from this self-serving industry of the past. Clean, just, renewable energy technologies will ensure a safe future and they're ready and waiting for our investment. On Global Divestment Day, we will show fossil fuel companies that we are truly a force to be reckoned with and that we're taking back our future. Together, let's make fossil fuels history.
My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of $5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my comments. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here is a reiteration of what you can do about it. Today's activism, 350.org's Global Divestment Day. Now, the typically on-point Naomi Klein sums up the need for this action quite well. Quote, Are fossil fuel companies, long toxic to our natural environment, becoming toxic in the public relations environment as well? It seems so. Despite science, despite polling, despite even the Pope getting on board with the need to curb climate change, the prevalence of massive piles of money available to legislators, networks, educational institutions, and public outlets is keeping projects like the Keystone XL pipeline at the top of to-do lists. Last month, the House of Representatives voted 266 to 153 to pass Keystone, and the Senate followed last week with a strong but not quite veto-proof majority of 62 to 36. Yes, that means some Democrats voted in favor of the pipeline. The president has vowed to veto the project, and our friends over at NRDC have a letter on their website you can sign asking him to keep his word, but that doesn't change the amount of time being wasted on this toxic project. Alternative renewable energy plans and necessary infrastructure bills languish while fossil fuels remain at the forefront. It's clear that the only way to stop the construction of destructive and potentially catastrophic projects like Keystone is to make them financially untenable for billionaire backers. If fossil fuels weren't guaranteed moneymakers, there wouldn't be lobbyists pushing legislators to back such a destructive industry. There'd be nothing in it for them. Enter Global Divestment Day. The entire world, six continents and dozens of countries at least, are participating on February 13th and 14th, joining with 350.org to speak en masse to their powerful institutions. GoFossilFree.org and 350.org both link to the plans for the event. You can find an action near you, start your own, download the divestment campaigning toolkit, valuable and valid long past the event next week, and find campaigning and petitioning tools. Each region around the world has its own specific resources, including a step-by-step guide to divestment. 350 and their coalition partners have done all the research for you. Just click, join, and use the tools they've made available at your fingertips. This should all be getting less controversial. Even the Pope has gotten increasingly vocal on the disproportionate effect climate change has on the poor and our global responsibility to care for those who are without power and resources. As detailed by John Abraham at The Guardian, Dr. Michael Naughton, Professor of Catholic Studies at the University of St. Thomas thinks we haven't heard the last from Pope Francis on climate change, and he's guaranteeing an anti-capitalism bent to his position. Quote, Francis will no doubt, in his punchy and prophetic tone, draw our attention to a market system that too often treats the environment like a commodity in what he describes as a throwaway culture. As he is never tired of repeating, the poor suffer the most from our ecological crisis. He will confront this logic of the market with a logic of gift that views the earth to be shared with all of humanity, a gift in need of great care and attention. 
I'm game for whatever your motivation might be to get on board with confronting climate change and demanding our institutions divest from supporting fossil fuels. It will take a truly worldwide effort to keep our planet livable for generations to come. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If ending our dependency on fossil fuels matters to you, be sure to hit the share button to spread the word about Global Divestment Day via social media so that others in your network can get involved. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed weather beating on your brow demanding answers here and now. Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. My name is Jay O'Hara. I'm going to tell a little bit about this lobster blockade story uh, and then uh, turn it over to, to my new friend Sam uh, to talk about what happened uh, at the courthouse in Fall River just down the street uh, at the beginning of September. On May 15th, uh, 2013, uh, my friend Ken Ward and I uh, and our friend Marla assembled on the docks in Newport, Rhode Island, uh, where Marla said a short prayer, reminding us that perfect love casts out fear. We set sail on our little lobster boat, the Henry David T, and motored up Narragansett Bay to the Brayton Point Power Station, which I'm sure many of you have seen. Brayton Point is the single largest source of climate-changing greenhouse gas emissions in all of New England. Boo. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there seemed no better place for us to, to, to send our little, little ship. We motored up to the, the pier alongside a massive black pile of coal that you can see here, which is now like three times that size. And we dropped our anchor. We dropped first a little normal boat-sized anchor. Uh, and then we dropped an enormous, large 200-pound anchor, which went over the side and tightened its chain with a like, bicycle U-lock around the keel of the boat, making us immovable. We then called the Somerset police and let them know that we were pursuing a peaceful, nonviolent protest against the use of coal. And then we waited. We waited for the ship to come in. Uh, because coming up Narragansett Bay about that time was the Energy Enterprise, which is a 450-some-odd-foot black hulking ship carrying 40,000 tons of Appalachian mountaintop removal coal to be burnt at Brayton Point. Boo! <laughs> I like it. Uh, and we had positioned ourselves in a place that stopped that boat from unloading that coal. We were boarded by the Coast Guard and spent most of the day hanging out with a bunch of Coast Guard guys while through bureaucratic snafu and I don't know what goes on on the other side of the, the Coast Guard that we don't get to pay attention to, but as essentially they tried to figure out what to do with us. The Energy Enterprise was able to dock kind of half on the pier and half off in a way that didn't endanger their safety but allowed them to... Uh, but prohibited them from unloading the coal. 
And through the Coast Guard, the Somerset Police, the State Police dive team, which was sent down from Framingham uh, to figure out what was going on. Uh, and through that luck and that bureaucratic snafu, we managed to stop that coal from being unloaded on May 15th. They didn't quite know what to do because one of the things that we were doing in our protest was that we were taking direct action, not against the people who work at the plant, not against the, um, the folks who are driving the boat, but we were really clear that, that our, the thing we were against, the thing we were trying to stop, is the coal. Um, that allowed us to meet the Coast Guard or meet the state police or whoever was uh, coming to enforce the law as human beings, being able to say, well, I understand you're here to do a job and we'll be totally compliant. Um, we have nothing against you. We're not here to pick a fight. Except we are here to pick a fight with the coal. Um, that snafu lasted, like I said, about seven hours, uh, at which point the Coast Guard had, uh, had labored on us and forced us essentially to uh, hire a barge to come and haul up our giant anchor. Uh, and we motored off for the day, not arrested, uh, not charged with anything. That would come later. Um, and we, we piloted our little boat across the river to Fall River and had a Portuguese dinner that could not be beat. <laughs> so, it didn't end there. I want to share a few kind of thoughts that I have about how we need to think about, and I think we need to think about, tackling the climate crisis. For me, I'd spent a number of years kind of wallowing, uh, <laughs> wallowing in despair because nothing, even the things that I had been doing, seemed to be operating on the level and scope and scale of the crisis that we're facing. Dr. James Hansen, uh, top climatologist, former top climatologist for NASA and who was on this stage last year. Is anybody, was anybody here for that? Yeah, all right. So Dr. Hansen says, and his colleagues have said, that we have to stop burning coal globally by 2030. That's in 15 years, if I got my watch right. And we are showing no signs of slowing down at this point. So we need to take large, bold action that's going to flip business as usual and put us on a new course. Up until that, up until a few years ago, the work I've been doing seemed linear in its work. We're doing very careful and hard and consistent organizing, trying to build a larger and larger movement, talking to people, having rallies and all that. But the truth is, we need to not be thinking in terms of change that's linear, we need to be talking about change that's exponential and transformative uh, if we're going to get this done in time. So one of the, one of the ways to do that is uh, invite you to find your way into this if we're going to say the world is ending, which essentially it is, we need to find a way in our lives to live like the world is ending. What does it look like in our own lives if we take this knowledge in and live authentically with it? All of us aren't going to be on a lobster boat. I totally understand that's a unique role. But for each of you, I suspect there is your own personal lobster boat. A place, a place where you are intimately connected with that is authentically yours, that is bold, is risky, 
and is in line with the scope and scale and urgency of the change we need. A friend of mine says that social, it isn't social movements that make change, but it's contagious acts of transformation. turned out that our little lobster boat had some transformative juices that we didn't actually anticipate happening. About a, two months after, uh, after we blockaded the ship, around 400 people showed up at the gates of Brayton Point demanding its closure in a powerful, colorful display where almost four dozen people were arrested, showing their commitment to seeing that plant and other coal plants around New England closed. It continued later that August. There was a big march from, uh, from Fall River, right across the river from the plant, all the way to Cape Cod, the site of future, hopeful future site of Cape Wind. And we actually came th- through New Bedford here and went down to where they're now building uh, this big ocean terminal to, to start building those wind turbines and setting them out into Nantucket Sound. It's pretty awesome. But uh, it seemed that the, uh, the transformation uh, wasn't ready to stop there. Uh, and this September, Ken and I were set to go to trial on four state charges. And we were ready to bring in climate experts like Dr. James Hansen, as well as Bill McKibben and others, to try and argue that not only, but that not only were our actions justified, they're necessary, uh, given what we know about the state of the science. Well, uh, as Sam is going to tell you, things didn't quite uh, go as we expected. Um, But I think that is the key. When we're doing things in our lives that act authentically in our authentic place, that's authentically ours, and we are living in a way that is commensurate with the truth as we understand it, it opens hearts, it changes minds, and allows the impossible to become possible. Thanks. This is Jeff, the liberal South Florida cop. Haven't called in in a while, but just wanted to comment on your comment about the caller in the uh, uh, in reference to why cops don't necessarily shoot to wound. You absolutely nailed it. Uh, the actual way we we're taught it in the academy, at least I was, was that we uh, shoot to incapacitate the person because obviously, like you said, they're doing something dire. We don't want them to cause serious bodily injury or kill another person or us. So we are left with the last option, which is deadly force. We shoot to wound, causing numerous wound cavities in the torso. Blood flows to those, causing someone to lose consciousness. We go over, we handcuff them once they've lost consciousness or have stopped shooting at us, or whoever they are shooting, stabbing, or causing serious bodily harm to. Handcuff them because our purpose is to arrest them, not to kill them. However, incapacitation by bullet wounds sometimes leads to death. So what we do after we handcuff them is we immediately call for emergency medical services, EMS. Obviously, that's sometimes hard to do when you are in that adrenaline-filled situation, so hopefully you get an ambulance to them quickly enough to save them, even though they have tried to kill you or someone else, because we are not trying to kill them. That is what we are supposed to and trained to do. Does it happen every time? No. The world's not perfect. But that's what most of us are trained to do and will hope to do when the time actually comes. So, 
That's uh, just a little bit more information if it helps. If not, just delete this. Thanks, man. Keep up the good work. This is Ruben from San Jose. Um, really flattered that you aired my first message. I think that the narrative of like thugs as being worthy of being like feared or discriminated against would be legitimate if there if there were such a thing as like a person that you could see and call like a thug. But the reality is is that. A lot of people who like you know sag their pants, and of course you know like I'm I, like we're, when, when we're talking about thug culture, we're like we're really talking about like black people, and like nobody that sags their pants or wears a lo- or wears a tall tee or like freaking or acts tough or is tough, you know, is necessarily going to be a violent or dangerous person. You know, it's it, it's a function of the environment that you grow up in like when martin like martin luther king was talking about how symptomatic you know that people would look as if they had they had come from a like you know a tough environment of course you know and now we try to talk about how the environment that people grow up in is a pretense to continue their their oppression like because they are who they are that they deserve to be discriminated against but if it's, if it's supposed to be predicated on things like, you know, uh, gun violence or money, then they're getting money from drugs. Like, it's, it's a false, it's a false pretense based on the fact that people from this environment are, are, like, take up the, the culture as a function of it being relevant to their experiences of, like, institutional discrimination, not having not having access to the same resources that other whiter people have in other neighborhoods, you know, and then the people from those other what like other whiter neighborhoods or the beneficiaries of this white supremacist capitalist system turn around and try and blame, you know, blame black people for the. Um, environment which was created for them which they which they are uh, you know like oppressed under without any like appreciation and and it shows they're doing this uncritically with the expressed intention of maintaining the oppression of black people whether they're conscious of it or not it's fucked up and it has to change thank you hi jay this is jill from san francisco Two things. First, I wanted to thank you for your recent episode on reproductive rights. I had just been talking with my mother about my crazy views that the abortion quote-unquote debate is really not at all about babies. So I was happy that I have now a link to send her so she can listen to other people talk about it in much uh, more clear terms than I can. Second, there was a New Yorker cartoon last week showing the uh, female stars of the Ghostbusters, new Ghostbusters movie, receiving their paychecks and noticing that it was, you know, 72% of, of what the men had gotten for the same movie. I've been thinking lately about the the concept of women making less, you know, X amount less than what a men make for the dollar and wondering how the conversation would be different if maybe we talked about what men make um, for every dollar that a woman makes. So instead of a woman making 24% less than a man, it's 
you know, a man makes up to a third more and what, where we set the baseline and how that might change the conversation. I'm not sure if it would help anything or not, but I'd be interested to hear what you think about that and how it relates to also the concept of privilege and how we, you know, what we consider the norm and where we go from there. So anyway, hope that makes sense. Thanks, Jay. Keep up the good work. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Now, first, uh, three things for you. Just reiterating requests I have made in previous episodes. First of all, this is the last time I'm going to have a chance to ask you to nominate the show for a podcast award this year. The nomination period ends February 6th. That's the end of this week on Friday. So if you would please go to podcastawards.com and you can nominate the show there. I would love if you would uh, put me in for the best produced category. And then, you know, there are like a dozen other categories. You can fill those in however you like and submit those. You only have to do it once. Secondly, I have a survey going right now. It's totally anonymous and only takes a few minutes. It's like 12 or 13 questions. None of them are essay questions, so it's real fast. And you can check that out at podsurvey.com slash left. And I would very much appreciate you doing that. And then finally, uh, we're in the absolute twilight of a Kickstarter campaign that I've been telling you about my friends over at The Good Fight have a fundraiser going on right now. And, And frankly, let me tell you this. Even if you have no intention whatsoever of donating to The Good Fight, I highly recommend you go and check out their Kickstarter campaign just to see their Kickstarter video. It is the best produced video I have seen for any Kickstarter, uh, you know, anywhere. And, you know, it's, it's not just high quality, it's entertaining. You will be entertained by it. It's worth your time to go check that out. And then finally today, I wanted to address the last voicemail we heard Jill from San Francisco asking about reframing the wage gap discussion. And it actually reminds me of this clip. I've had this in my back pocket for months and months. I just haven't had the chance to to play it yet, but I'll give you the basic gist, which is they did a study focusing on one of the Uh, one of the arguments that gets brought out in the wage gap discussion a lot, which is that women aren't as good at negotiating their own salaries. So, you know, what are we going to do? I mean, the employers aren't going to give them more money than they negotiate for, and women are just crappy negotiators, so it's really their own fault. And so this study looked at that argument, and lo and behold, it turns out it's true. Women are not as good as men at negotiating their own salaries, at least in this study. So, you know, pause for a moment, let some people get frustrated and indignant about that, let some other people be smugly self-satisfied and reassured that they were right all along and it is women's fault. And then you dig a little bit deeper into the study and you see what it shows. Because the other thing it says is that when women are negotiating not for their own salary, but for the salary of someone else, they are exactly on par with men for their ability to negotiate a good salary. So what does that mean and why is that? Women can negotiate someone else's salary better than they can negotiate their own. Doesn't seem to make any logical sense because men are equal. You know, whether they're negotiating their own salary or someone else's salary, it's exactly the same. So what does that tell us about what women are going through in the negotiating process? Well, you got to take a big step back, 
look at society sort of holistically, look at the patriarchal systems that are in place, look at the influences that are put on women from an incredibly young age, all of the sort of microaggressions and, and uh, just urging, and you know, in every little way from the time they're very young, women are urged to be sort of passive and submissive and, you know, make sure you don't ruffle feathers, it's unladylike to be forceful and so on and so on. And so, not only does a woman know that when, when they're going into a work situation, not only do they know that, but everyone else has also been socialized in the same way. So the expectation the woman puts on herself is if I want to get along, I have to act this way. And everyone else who works at the office expects that of women too, because we've all been taught the same thing. So when a woman goes into the negotiating table that's part of the calculation so that when she goes to that negotiating table, she not only has to negotiate her own salary and try to get as much money as possible, but also has to set herself up for a good working experience at that office. And so you can try to get a lot of money, but you can't be pushy. You can't ruffle feathers because then all of a sudden the person who's your boss when you start the job has this negative impression of you and maybe your work experience won't go as well. Maybe you get a reputation in the office of being pushy or bitchy or, you know, who knows what, and that makes it an, a negative experience. So whether consciously or unconsciously, women going to that negotiating table have this deeply internalized socialization that teaches them to not be forceful, whereas men are socialized in almost the exact opposite way. So, of course, they're going to be able to negotiate, uh, you know, better salaries for themselves, whereas women negotiating on behalf of someone else don't have any of those hangups because they're not the one who's going to have to work in that office. They're not the one who's going to have to have that boss who they may take off in the negotiating session. The problem, though, is it's a complete double standard because we don't have those expectations of men. We don't think of a man as being pushy or bitchy or any of those other types of things. They're just, you know, a forceful go-getter. If anything, we respect them more for being extra forceful and, and being a good negotiator. So as with any issue you can think of, it is not just about that issue. Things are way more interconnected than I think most people will ever realize. And so, you know, you have to take into consideration that when we're discussing the wage gap, you can't just talk about the wage gap and hiring practices and, you know, all of those sorts of things. You have to talk about, you know, patriarchy. Just start at the beginning, start at the top, work your way down and, everything will fall into place and make much more sense. I would love to hear your thoughts. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's
it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what 